Well, as Matt said at the beginning of our service, we are starting a new series of messages that we're calling From Bondage to Freedom, and it is going to be a study in the book of Exodus. And the reason we're calling it From Bondage to Freedom is because that is the movement of the Christian life. That is, when you give your life to Jesus, the authentic expression of the outworking of that giving of your life to Jesus. In other words, our Savior is ever and always calling us out of some form of bondage and into some form of freedom. And then, of course, at the end of our lives, we are liberated from all of the bondage of this world and of this life, and we enter into the eternal freedoms of the presence of the Lord. It is not a bad deal. And so it's from bondage to freedom that we move, but the reason that we're studying that idea out of the book of Exodus is because the Exodus, as Matt also said, probably provides us with certainly the most dramatic picture in the whole of the Old Testament, but I think also the most beautiful, the most intricate, the most detailed picture that we can find, at least in the first two-thirds of the Bible, of this idea, of this movement. But in order to understand that, in order to see that picture, to appreciate its beauty, to sense and feel its intricacies, to see its different colors and hues and shades and all of that stuff, you need to understand first two things. So you need to understand the meaning of the name of the book, which again, the name is Exodus, and it means the way out, which raises the question of the way out of what? And to get that, you need to understand the second thing. And that's the storyline of the book that immediately precedes the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the Bible, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, okay. Well, there's a first book of the Bible, and it's named Genesis. And incidentally, we believe that it's written by the same man. His name is Moses. And when you get to Exodus, you realize, and it's very evident, that Exodus is merely a continuation of Genesis. And so then what is Genesis all about? You know, like in a nutshell, because it's 50 chapters. How does it begin? It begins with God in a man, in a woman, in a garden, with a mission. And what's the mission? Because you're going to hear it again, not at the beginning of Genesis, but at the beginning of Exodus. The Lord God came to the man and to the woman, and in the garden he said to them, it says, God blessed the man and the woman, and then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Remember this language, and fill the earth, fill the land, that's actually the word, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. But of course, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that they blew it big time. And why did they blow it big time? Because there was something or really someone else in the garden. There was a serpent in the garden, the personification of the evil one of old, the enemy of God, the enemy of his people, the enemy of that mission. Fill the world with a worshiping community of people Yeah, and we're going to have to do something about that. And so he comes to the man and the woman, and he baits them. He lures them into disobeying the one and only command that God gives to them. You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. How does he bait them? By coming as a talking snake. Have you ever seen a talking snake? I mean, I know you've seen the Harry Potter movies. Okay, just admit it. But outside of that, I mean, really, like a real snake that talks, anybody? How about a dog? How about a cat? Like any animal that talks. I know parrots talk, but they're not having a conversation with you. It's a capacity that does not belong to the animal kingdom. He comes as a talking snake. Why? What is he suggesting? He's saying, hey, listen... I've already eaten of the fruit of that tree. And far from dying, look what it's done for me. 
God has not given you this command to protect you from something bad. He's given you this command to keep you from something good. Can you imagine what you'll be able to do if you eat this fruit? I'm a talking snake. You'll be like God. See how it works? Because it works that way with me too. It works that way with you too. He comes to us with the commands of God that feel kind of restrictive, don't they? And, and he causes us to feel restricted. He comes to us and in effect says, hey, listen, did God really give you this command to protect you from something bad or to keep you from something good? He takes that which is good and he labels it bad and that which is bad and he labels it good and that which is life and he labels it death and that which is death and he labels it life. And just like these guys in the garden, we believe his lies and we eat the fruit. And what do we find? Because it is death definitely not freedom. We find ourselves in bondage. And we find ourselves with a ruptured relationship with the Lord. We find ourselves driven out of the garden, which is exactly what happens with them. God drives them out of the garden. And so then, what do we need a way out of? We need a way out of bondage to sin and death, and we need a way back in to the presence of Almighty God. And so God, in His goodness, in the midst of this massive crisis with Adam and Eve, gives them and us a promise of hope. And it is so appropriate that we read this in Advent. Speaking to the serpent, God says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. And I'm going to stop there and say that is a tragically awful way to translate that word. It is not offspring. It is seed. Offspring is theologically deaf, frankly. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, the reason that I think that it's tragically mistranslated is because it doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, if you think about it for a second, biologically and biblically, every other procreative instance or example in the Bible, the seed, and we all know this, is in the man. And so now he's talking about the seed of the woman. We're like, no, we got to change that word and make it offspring unless... He's talking about one who will be born in a very different fashion. Unless he's talking about one who would be supernaturally conceived. Who will be conceived without the aid of a human father. Unless he's talking about Jesus, which he so evidently is. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, the supernaturally conceived, virginally born one. And what will he come to do? He shall bruise or crush your head, O serpent, and to stomp on the head of a snake is to kill the snake. However, he then says, and you shall bruise his heel. And since the bite of a poisonous snake, guys, is deadly... What is God saying? He's saying that the supernaturally conceived, virginally born one who will be born into this world, we know because we have the New Testament and we are uniquely in this season of Advent that leads up to Christmas, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks, is Jesus will reverse the curse of the serpent. He will destroy and deliver his people. He will make a way out, but it will cost him his life to do it. And so much of the rest of the Bible is really just an outworking of that statement. It's how does it work? And perhaps the most significant person in the line or in the lineage of Jesus that you find in the whole of the Bible is a man named Abraham, and you meet him too in the book of Genesis. And what does God do? He comes to Abraham, and among other things, he promises him a son through whom will be born a great nation, 
through whom will be born the one who is the Savior, the supernaturally conceived, virginally born one who is Christ. But that's not all that God says to Abraham, because God comes to Abraham before his son is even born, much less the whole nation. And he says, let me tell you what's going to happen with that nation. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13, he says, know for certain that your offspring, this nation that will come forth from your body will be sojourners, they will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants or slaves there. And they will be afflicted, you ready for this? For 400 years. But I will deliver them. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And if you're reading the book of Genesis and you don't know the rest of the story and you don't know the rest of the story of the Bible, you know, you don't know in the moment that you read that, at least for the first time, that the nation that God is talking about who will enslave his people is obviously the nation of Egypt, but it becomes really, really obvious as you continue through the book of Genesis and then on into the beginning of Exodus because what happens next is Abraham has Isaac and then Isaac has Jacob and then Jacob has 12 sons, one of which is named Joseph. And the other 11 hate Joseph. And they take Joseph and they sell him as a slave to some spice traders that are heading down to Egypt who sell him as a slave to someone in Egypt. But God is with Joseph. And if you know the story, God raises Joseph up. He elevates him from the lowly position of a slave to the right-hand man of Pharaoh, king of Egypt himself, who places control of the whole of Egypt under the authority of Joseph, through whom God reveals the future to Pharaoh. And the future is this. There's going to be seven years of great, amazing, incredible abundance in the land of Egypt, which is awesome, but then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine, which is a death sentence. Can you survive a year? Yeah, two years. Oh, we're pushing it three years. Okay, now we're losing everybody. Seven years, we're done. Devastating. And Pharaoh says, well, what shall we do? And Joseph says, we need to maximize the agricultural potential of Egypt during the seven years. And we, you and I, Pharaoh, need to store it all up during the seven years. We need to live as if it's a famine in the good times so that when the famine comes, we have enough food, not just for us to make it, but for everyone to make it. And that's exactly what Joseph does. And then when the famine comes... He, listen to this language, enslaves the entire nation of Egypt to Pharaoh their king. And here's why I say that. Because they come to Joseph starving. And he says, well, then I'll sell you grain. And then when they're out of money, because Joseph's collected up all the wealth, they come to Joseph starving. And he says, well, then I'll collect up all of your cattle. And then when they're out of cattle, they come to Joseph starving. And he says, and now I will collect up all of your land and even you yourself. And from now on, at the back end of this famine, your land belongs now to Pharaoh and you will work it. You can keep 80% and Pharaoh takes 20. It was a flat tax of 20%, just throwing that out there. But in any event, it's biblical wisdom, okay? Joseph was a great manager. But do you see that? He takes the whole of the Egyptians and he takes everything from them and he centralizes all of the power in Pharaoh. But the famine isn't just in Egypt. 
The famine extends way beyond Egypt. It extends to the land of his father and of his brothers, you know, the guys that sold him into slavery. And so guess who shows up looking for food? And guess who they get to meet? And Joseph, in goodness and in grace, he sees how God has orchestrated all of this for the salvation of his family and of this whole region of the world, frankly. Forgives his brothers and reconciles with his family and says, guys, the famine's going to keep going. Like, you don't need to just keep, you just need to move here. And so he moves his entire family from the promised land, okay, to Egypt. And he moves them up into a northeastern kind of quadrant of the Nile Delta, a land called Goshen. And he puts all of Pharaoh's cattle in their charge. And so he gives them all jobs. He does not, incidentally, enslave any of them. And then Joseph comes to the end of his life, the very end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50, beginning in verse 24. And we read this. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. How does he know that? Because God had told Abraham, you guys are going to be enslaved for 400 years, and then I will visit you. I will bring you up out of this land. You will exit with great possessions. These people knew the promises is the point. God will visit you. He'll bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here when he delivers you from bondage and brings you to the land of freedom. And that's exactly what they do 300 or so years later when they're finally delivered in the exodus from Egypt, which we'll finally now begin to look at. But before we begin to look at it, I want to give you what I think is kind of the overarching, overriding question, not just to this message, but for probably most of this study. And the question is this. It is, look, since Jesus, the supernaturally conceived, virginally born one, promised one, son of God, son of man, came into this world to live and to suffer, to die, to be buried, to defeat death and resurrection that he might free us from bondage and bring us into freedom. All right, well, I think that we ought to stop at various points in this study as we move through story by story and looking at all of these intricacies and say, hey, okay, now wait a minute, I got to pull the car over on the side of the road. Here's the question. Since that's the case, am I living in bondage or am I living in freedom? Because it is for freedom, guys, that Christ Jesus has set us free. So the book of Exodus begins with this. Moses says in Exodus 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household when there was a famine. And Joseph said, you guys just need to move here, and I'm going to put you up in the land of Goshen. It's really an amazing place. So here are the names of the sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob when they moved to Egypt were 70 persons. And Joseph, of course, was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation died. And then we come to verse 7 where we read, and I hope this sounds familiar if you're still with me, Moses, the same author who wrote the beginning of Genesis here at the beginning of Exodus, says, but the people of Israel were what? Fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the earth, so that the land was filled with them. 
Okay, what does that sound like? It sounds like the mission that God gave to Adam and Eve. And he gave it to Adam and Eve where? In a garden. Well, here's the other thing about Genesis. And I left this out. But if you read it before you get to Exodus, you realize that in one of those stories, Moses specifically compares Egypt to the Garden of Eden. And if you look at a satellite picture of it, you can see why. Desert. Desert, 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 Nile River, which forks off into various rivers and tributaries and creates what's called the Nile Delta. And it's beautiful. It's green. It's lush. It's like a garden. This right here has nothing to do with the message, but it just kind of jazzes me, so I'm going to share it with you. This is called the Fayum, okay? What is the Fayum? When we read in the book of Genesis about the story of of Joseph and how he went out, it says that he surveyed the land. He's seeking to maximize the agricultural potential in the seven years of abundance. Well, what he discovered is that there's a, a depression in the desert right there. In other words, it's lower in elevation. And so he cut a canal right here and he irrigated that entire area. I was there like, I don't know, maybe six years ago. And there are signs. It says the River Yosef, the River Joseph. The wisdom of Joseph is blessing the nation of Egypt even to this day. It's remarkable, but the idea is you have God and you have great fertility and you have it in a garden and you have it in both books at the beginning of each. So now what, are you, what else are you looking for suddenly in Exodus? What else was in the garden? A serpent. And you are not disappointed. It's exactly what you get next. It says in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that doesn't mean that he didn't know about Joseph. They know about Joseph today. They've got signs for his river. It's not the point. It means that the previous dynasty of kings ended and that the new king was not a son of one of the previous kings. It was a brand new family. It was a whole new dynasty beginning with this new king who maintained none of the allegiances that the previous dynasty had, including the allegiance to Joseph and to Israel. And this king, by the way, wanted to move the capital city of Egypt. And I I have a graphic of Egypt. He wanted to move it from Memphis, which you can see here, up here to Avaris. You see that? That's where Cairo is located today. All right, there are two problems with that move. So one problem is that it's really expensive to build a new capital city, and it's really expensive to build all the supply cities around the new capital city. And the other problem is that that area right up there where he wants to move his capital is the land of Goshen. So guess who's living there and multiplying and filling the land? It's the Israelites. So the Pharaoh seeks to solve two problems with one solution. He enslaves the people of Israel, therefore he has a free labor source that lowers the cost of this move. And then in addition to that, he works these guys to death, hoping that he would leave them with no time and he would leave them with no energy to have kids. And you say, well, then where's the serpent? Well, the serpent is Pharaoh. If we look at the next picture, you can see that. See, Pharaoh wore the Uraeus crown. See that? It's a serpent poised to strike. It's remarkable. The Bible is an amazing book. 
And so in verse 9, we're told that this new Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come and let us deal shrewdly. How is the serpent of Genesis described, if you know the story? As being crafty, as being shrewd. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, he says, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What is that? That's motivation of the masses by scaring them to death. So this is not a new technique, is my point. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And as slaves to the Egyptians, the Israelites built for Pharaoh store cities. And here are the names, Pitham and Ramses. And if you're following all of this, that is highly ironic. And here's why I say that, because Joseph one of the Israelites, enslaved all of the Egyptians to the Egyptian Pharaoh, centralized all of the power in him and left it behind. And what does a new Pharaoh who knows not Joseph do? He enslaves all of the Israelites to the Egyptians. What is that called? It's called justice. As you read through the Bible, studying justice, one of the things that you discover is that the justice of God is talionic in nature. So here's what that means. It means you get what you give. To use the language of Paul, it means you reap what you sow. So if you're looking to pull the car over, we'll do that in a minute. Something to think about as you survey your life. What am I sowing? And now it is the Egyptians' turn. And so they enslave the Israelites, and they start having them build cities. And the city that they build in the east is called Ramses, which means a son of the sun god, one who is born of the sun god Ra, Ramses. And the one that they build in the west is called Pitham, which means house of the setting sun, because in Egyptian theology, the sun in the sky is the son of the sun god, whose name is Ra, who is born every morning and races across the sky. And then now wait for it, when he gets to the western sky and goes to set, if you will, he is attacked by a serpent and killed and buried and then defeats death and resurrection. He's reborn every single morning. That's a remarkable thought because here you have the Pharaoh of Egypt who wears the Uraeus crown. He is himself identified with the serpent. And what is he doing? He is attacking the fertility of the nation that will produce the true seed of the woman who will defeat the true serpent and in the process himself die by the bite, if you will, of that snake. He will live, suffer, die, and then be raised again from the dead. And nevertheless, this same Pharaoh who's engaged in this activity believes that the sun in the sky is a son of a god who dies every day at the bite of a poisonous snake and then defeats death and resurrection. It's amazing. And then in verse 12, we're told that notwithstanding all of this effort by the Pharaoh and and by the Egyptians, the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they sought to curb their fertility, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, God is overdoing their work. He's undoing it. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves for most of 400 years which would indeed be bitter. 
especially if you were born in like year 200 or 250. How about 300? Why? Because you knew the promise that God had given to Abraham. You knew the number. Delivery is coming after 400. And you can do the math, can't you? And realize, well, I guess it's not coming for me. That's something, isn't it? It's where we'll pick it up next week. But for today, what I want to do is go back to the overarching question. All right, so since Jesus, the supernaturally conceived, virginally born one, has come into the world to live, to suffer, to die, to be raised to defeat the evil one, to make a way out of bondage to sin and death, to bring us back into the presence of God by defeating for us everything that we've done to divorce ourselves from Him. Since He's done that, am I, are you, Man, are we living in bondage or are we living in freedom? And you say, all right, well, can you help me figure that out like maybe from this story? Sure, just walk back through the story. I mean, what have we heard in the story? So we've heard, for example, that the evil one calls good evil and evil good and life death and death life, that he takes the commandments of God, which are in fact meant to protect us and to keep us free from things. From what? From bondage. And he causes us to to believe that maybe they're meant to keep us from something good. And we take and we eat and we find ourselves in bondage. You can just survey your life and go, hey man, where am I believing the lie about myself, about my worth, about my stuff, about God, about whatever? Because the Lord would have you to be free. So that's one thing. I think we've seen that God's justice is talionic in nature. You get what you give. So what are you giving? You reap what you sow, so what are you sowing in your relationship with the Lord or with your spouse or with your kids or parents or friends or whatever, in your health, emotionally, physically, spiritually? What seeds are you planting in your life that are designed to produce freedom? And what seeds are you planting that are designed to produce bondage? Because the Lord would cause you and call you to be free. And then lastly... I think we've seen that some of us, at least, are consigned to suffer our whole lives. And nobody wants to hear that. But it seems to me that the story is going, and yeah, that happens. So were those people less faithful or more faithful than the ones who were delivered? (laughs) They were at least as faithful, I'll tell you that, because they maintained their faith knowing that the day of deliverance was not coming in their life. And then they raised faithful kids who maintained their faith knowing that the day of deliverance wasn't coming in their life. And they raised faithful kids who maintained their faith knowing that the day of deliverance wasn't coming in their life until in some generation the day of deliverance came. And they did it knowing that the day of deliverance was coming. It has been set by our God for all of us and knowing that this life is not the only one there is. So you look at something like that and you go, all right, then how am I suffering? I mean, because I'd sure like to be delivered in this life and I know everybody would. And maybe you will, I don't know. But if you aren't, God is still faithful. He will still deliver and He will empower you to walk through it to serve it out, and to be faithful to Him. So, there is a way out, is the idea, of the bondage that we have created for ourselves. 
And there is a way in to relationship with this God. And the way out and the way in has the same name. And his name is Jesus. And it is his birth that we long for and look toward the celebration of in this season. But it's his coming again, too, that we get in touch with in this season as well. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the great and rich stories that are contained in your word, stories of life, stories of hope, stories of deliverance, stories of the way that you maintain faithfulness to your people, even the ones you don't deliver from the things they'd like to be delivered from in this life. You, God, are faithful and you have a forever vision for us. I pray, Lord, that you would take your word and story by story, beginning with this one, you would allow us to examine our own hearts, our own minds, our own attitudes, our own actions, our conducts, our words, ourselves in a way that exposes things that will lead to bondage that we might surrender them, be forgiven entirely and wholly of them, and begin to experience the joy and the freedom that comes from leaving them at the feet of Jesus and then following Him. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.